But then maybe you could like put out flyers and be like, people, if you have honey on your shelves, please donate it to our research. <laughs> Can you spare a spoonful of honey for your scientist neighbors? <laughs> Just a spoonful of honey helps the science go down. <laughs> Welcome to Not Yet a Doctor, the podcast where, on the road to scientific discovery, it's sometimes useful to stop and sample the flowers. My name is Alistair. I'm a PhD candidate in analytical chemistry at Queen's University. My name is Sienna. I am a PhD candidate in neuroscience at McGill University. My name is Beth. I'm a PhD student in particle physics at Sapienza University of Rome. And we are the PhD three. To be, to be, woo, to be. All right. (laughs) (laughs) This is what we've been leading up to all these episodes. (laughs) Exactly. I hinted at this uh, a while ago to you guys, but today we're going to be talking about bees. Um, and I have a kind of serendipitous road that I went down to find this. Um, I got a news alert on my computer about an article that really interested me, so I read the article. And of course, in the article, they mentioned the paper that this research was based on. So I went and found the paper, and I was reading through the paper, and I realized that the researchers are um, at the University of British Columbia. So they're in BC, in Canada. And I thought, oh, I could I could reach out and send an email to them and maybe see if they would agree to be interviewed for the podcast. And so graciously, they both did. And so I have some really great interview clips from them uh, for our episode today. This is very exciting. Yes. I know. It's, uh, I'm, uh, I'm super looking forward to this. So uh, I think we should just dive right in <laughs> and um, I'm going to let these researchers introduce themselves. My name is Kate Smith and I am a doctoral candidate at the University of British Columbia in the Department of Earth, Oceanic and Atmospheric Sciences. And I work in the uh, lab group. The director is Dr. Dominique Weiss, and she runs the Pacific Center for Isotopic and Geochemical Research. I'm uh, Dominique Weiss. I'm a Canadian research chair in the geochemistry of the Earth's mantle. And that actually doesn't tell much about what I'm doing. No. Yes, I still deal with the geochemistry of the mantle, studying Hawaii, for instance to know where the various lavas comes, come. But uh, I also apply geochemistry in studying environmental questions and indigenous-led uh, questions. And that's a lot of um, fun and a lot of opportunities to interact and solve interesting questions. These are our two guests today. I'm honestly already really excited. Like, yeah. I have no idea what their research has got to do with anything. Like, Alistair has told us that this episode is going to be on bees, and that's all that we know so far. Mm-hmm. So environmental geochemistry and the Earth's mantle and how they relate to bees, clearly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the key concepts we're going to talk about today 
are lead isotopes. Mm -hmm. And so um, I have... This is uh, all so Kate. confusing. I know, I know. I'm, I'm introducing everything so that as we go through on this, as I said, the road to scientific discovery, we will we will piece it all together. Yes. Um, so I have Kate and Dr. Weiss talking about the work they do and the uh, work with isotopes that they do. But I wanted to introduce what isotopes are. Maybe some of our listeners aren't as familiar with isotopes as I am. Mm -hmm. Maybe this will be a good refresher for you, Sienna, or even Beth. I don't know, you maybe don't deal with isotopes on a day-to-day -day basis. Not anymore. But I did study yeah. chemistry, so... So isotopes are atoms that have the same number of protons in the nucleus, but a different number of neutrons. And we often refer to them by their atomic masses, since that's what differs between them. So for instance, uh, carbon-12 has six protons and six neutrons, giving it a mass of 12, right? But carbon-14 has six protons and eight neutrons. So it's uh, different isotopes of carbon, carbon-12 and carbon-14. Um, so I'm going to let Kate introduce a little bit about the isotopes that they work with. So there are four stable isotopes of lead. And lead 204 is, is the least abundant. That's basically primordial lead. It's, it's been here since the birth of the universe, lead 204. Mm -hmm. But lead 208, 206, and 207, those are the three most abundant isotopes of lead. They're all stable daughter products of long convoluted radiogenic decay chains, radio, radioactive decay chains of uranium-238, thorium-232, and because the earth is so old, right, there's been time to accumulate these other isotopes of lead. And so the amount of those three daughter products of lead, the 208, 207 and 206, that's going to depend on time, first of all. It's like a ticking clock sort of thing. Mm -hmm. and, and the initial amounts of uranium and thorium in that, that, that existed in that rock that eventually produced that ore deposit or so forth. So that's in general how it works. And because these, the differences sometimes in the abundance of these isotopes is so small, uh, for better precision, we often measure them in terms of relative to the primordial lead the lead 204. So that's why you'll see in the literature uh, a ratio, a lead ratio. It's just, it's easier to look at the differences in the ratios. You'll have better precision and th the data is a lot easier to interpret in that sense. Mm -hmm. uh, so Kate was talking about lead isotopes. We're gonna yes. be talking about lead today, that lovely element on the periodic table. Um, I will say one thing, it is um, toxic. So that's why we're really interested in it, because it causes um, serious health effects mm -hmm. to humans. This is why Montreal is trying to replace all the lead pipes in our water systems. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so Kate touched on, at the end of her uh, clip there, she touched on that they look at lead isotopes, but they can look at the primordial lead, or the, the lead that they find in relation to the lead 204, the primordial lead. So um, here's Dr. Weiss talking a little bit more about lead ratios, lead isotope ratios. First, if you want to use this isotopic ratio for dating things, it works. But it also means that because lead is a heavy element, element the isotopes are not fractionated during processes 
on earth mm. meaning if uh, you crystallize a mineral it's not going to function it led the isotopic composition it's one of the heaviest elements, which basically means that minerals from different sources or metals from different sources will have a different signature of lead that's a function of the location the age and the original isotopic composition of the source that crystallized these minerals to make it simple for people who are not chemists or specialists the lead isotopic signature is like the fingerprint of the source Mm -hmm. For instance, in the work I'm doing from in Hawaii, if I take a lava from Kauai, for instance, the island of Kauai, it has a different lead isotopic signature than a lava from the island, the big island from Mauna Kea. Very, very distinct. And so just by analyzing the lead isotopic composition, you can tell where the lava, which island the lava is coming from. Did she say why? Kind of, yeah. So it's it's because it's a few factors. One of them is that lead is a unique element in that it's very heavy. It has a high atomic mass, you know, 200, 204, 208. And so when you have um, processes on Earth, they do not change the isotopic composition, which is unique for lead. Other elements like iron or many of the lighter elements, carbon, will change their isotopic composition when you smelt them or when you process them in some way or you know even in the earth's processes forming new mantle and, and new rocks and stuff and so that's why you have very unique signatures of lead um around the world but why like i don't really understand because i don't really know anything about planet formation or anything but you get a whole load of like dust in the universe right and then gradually, gradually, it starts to like clump together into a planet. Mm-hmm. And then, like, that planet starts getting geological processes and like plate tectonics and um, like mountains and volcanoes and blah blah blah. And we have an atmosphere, so we have weather and stuff like that. But, like, why, why are there different? Like, I, I get what you're saying that, like, once. Uh, an isotopic signature of lead has formed in a particular place, it's very difficult for it to change. But how mm-hmm. did it form in the first place? Um, so that's kind of what Kate touched on. It's from the radioactive decay chains of uranium and thorium and, and stuff like that. And so okay. because the radioactive elements are not evenly distributed around the Earth, right? it's not what okay. we call homogenous, yeah. um, because there's more uranium up near the North Pole than near the equator or, or stuff like that. Um, there's going to be these different decay chains okay. and different signatures around the world. But we don't necessarily know why there's more uranium in one place than another. Um, I don't know. Okay. Uh, Dr. Weiss <laughs> might know. <laughs> uh, I'll have to ask her. Um, but yeah, it's okay. It's just... All right. I thought it was really interesting that she can see in her research from the different islands of Hawaii mm-hmm. the different signatures. Yeah. And um, part of that, she said, um, was due to the high-resolution instruments that they have, mm-hmm. that they can see these very minute differences. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very cool. I was going to say, I'm not surprised that there is... I mean, nothing is homogeneously distributed across Earth, it seems. 
So it's not surprising mm-hmm. to me that uranium is yeah localized to places. Well, I mean, I guess it's the same. I don't know, but I assume it's the same question as to like why you get um, mines of particular elements or composites or whatever in certain places, like. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. why there were tin mines in Cornwall or why there were coal mines in Newcastle or like mm-hmm. I don't know or the gold rush in the Yukon Yeah, I mean I, I guess the, yeah. the earth is just not very homogenous <laughs> I think that's the answer right yeah so um, this actually ties well into my next little clip my next little part because um, Dr. Weiss is the Canada Research Chair for Earth and oceanic sciences in the Earth's mantle. But I'm sure you were thinking in the back of your heads, what has this got to do with the bees? I've just forgotten about the bees what? at this point. I like, for, it's like we're at the mantle, <laughs> we're at isotopes. <laughs> no, we're, we're at bees. We're at bees? So here is Kate to explain how bees tie into this research. People have been using bees as biomonitors since mid-century. It's been several decades now. Uh, but the use of, of lead isotopes is sort of the new thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but but so Dominique uh, was put into contact with this local nonprofit organization. They're called Hives for Humanity. They're a really, really wonderful organization. If If anyone who's listening is in the Vancouver area and wants to get involved with them, they should look them up. They're really cool. They, uh, they manage several hundred hives in Metro Vancouver, throughout Metro Vancouver. And what they do is they work with people, people who have been, they've overcome addiction or they've, um, they've previously been homeless or they've been somehow marginalized by society. And they can work with Hives for Humanity to learn beekeeping or other related trades, which is, is really cool. It's really that's awesome. A fantastic organization. And so they had originally when they first started, I think was oh, probably a several years before 2014, but they started producing honey and the honey, you know, as, as a bit of fun marketing, they were marketing it like in various terroirs, kind of like wine. So they would be like, oh, this is the Kitsilano Vancouver honey. This is the downtown east side honey. This like you could buy the honey from your neighborhood. And they all tasted a little bit different. And it was just a fun, a fun way to market it. But there were critics and they said, Well, how do you know there's not heroin in your honey? And they'd say really cruel things like that. And uh, so of course, Hives for Humanity sent honey to several laboratories to test for various things and some honey made it to Dominique's lab and uh, she of course does the inorganic testing and so they tested it for metals including various heavy metals which are neurotoxic of course like lead and cadmium but when you have elevated amounts of those metals it's usually indicative of human activity right or a, a city center or a, a dirty rail yard or a port or something like that but of course all of the honey that we analyzed in Vancouver is, of course, perfectly safe for consumption. I think we calculated in the most lead-rich honey, so to speak, from downtown in the city was you would have to eat over half a kilogram a day for like a week straight to reach that sort of bottom edge of, of the FDA restrictions. So it, it's really not 
<laughs> the honey is perfectly fine. And we have to be really careful, I think, when we talk about the geochemistry of honey, because we're talking about, as geochemists, we're talking about trace amounts, very, very low amounts. And all of these samples, I mean, we're, we're looking at lead isotopes, so the work needs to be very clean. All of this is done in clean laboratories. Um, the dust on your shoes, if you wore your street shoes into our clean lab, that would throw off the lead isotope results. So that, those are the sorts of levels we're talking about. And we have to be careful to communicate that clearly with a general audience, because as soon as you say lead and honey, people freak out because a beekeeper might hear that or a consumer might hear that and of course be very worried. And rightly so. I, I'm really glad that, that public health education and outreach is improving enough that people, they know now that, oh, legacy light in the environment is real and it's still hurting people today. And uh, they're at least more aware of their surroundings and understanding that, that there are still toxic living conditions mm -hmm. everywhere essentially so wow i love it i love urban beekeeping i am such a big fan <laughs> this Isn't is that cool great oh my gosh yeah, how that cool. Is really cool yeah what did you say beth that's a lot of honey that you don't have to eat <laughs> Yeah, I yeah, exactly. like that. Made me sick even thinking about it. Yeah, no, um, no, yeah. that's that's a really cool program. Um, just anything that mm -hmm. like gives people both something to do, like literally just fills time for people, and mm -hmm. also like gives them responsibility, and then so much better if they're then like doing something that's helpful to the general community. I think that's, mm -hmm. I think that's a really good thing. And I, I love the idea that it's these different terroirs of honey. You know, you can buy the honey from your neighborhood. That and... was so cute when she said, like, that was just like such a sweet idea. Yeah. Yeah. And, and because the bees, you know, have a very kind of small area that they forage mm -hmm. in, it, it varies, but um, it, it is unique to that neighborhood. You know, they're finding flowers yeah. in your backyard or, you know, around your neighborhood. And so they all have different tastes and stuff. Have you guys ever seen found an urban bee? Because one time I found a bee, it landed on my boyfriend's shirt, and it was very tired. So I like got some sugar water for it, and then I found it a flower and put it on. And I hope it's okay out there, bee, wherever you are. That's so sweet. Oh. How long do bees live for? Bees live for around um, 45 days, I think it is. Do you think it's still alive then, Sienna? No, no, it's not still alive. But like, I hope I hope it lived past the day that it looked like it was going to die. One thing, it um, it bugs me when people... It bugs you? <laughs> it, it bugs me when people confuse wasps and mm. bees. And they'll see a wasp and be like, oh, there's a bee in here. Oh, get it. And I'm like, okay, One. that's a wasp. Mm -hmm. Do kill it. Please, it's a wasp, though. I confuse wasps and bees. I really, sh I really shouldn't. My mom would be very disappointed with me. She will be very disappointed with me when she hears this. But I found a striped insect the other day at the laboratories where I work. And um, now I'm confused as to whether it was a wasp or a bee. And it was very sad looking and very, like, it was just sitting on the floor. It was still alive. And it was like crawling to and fro. And I feel like I should have got it some sugar water and given it to it. But 
I don't know where I would have got sugar water anyway. I guess I could have gone to the coffee machine and got some sugary coffee, but... Um, <laughs> Giving it some coffee. <laughs> I'm not sure how it would be. <laughs> and then it really would have zipped around. <laughs> um, anyway, I'm, I'm so, not sure whether it's a, a bee or a wasp, but um, how do you tell the difference? Bees are round and cute. Wasps have, like, pointy butts, usually. But, like, mm-hmm. you, but like honeybees aren't very round. Mm, I think they're, like... They're taper. They're rounded off at the bottom. Wasps are pointed okay. at the bottom. They're pointed. Okay. Like bees look like more like jelly beans. Bees are like jelly beans. Mm-hmm. Wasps are like if you sharpened a jelly bean. Sharpened <laughs> a jelly bean. <laughs> a jelly okay. bean shank. All right, I'm gonna send you guys um, a picture. I'm gonna send you guys a picture over Facebook, and you can tell me whether it was a wasp or a bee. I think that's a bee. You think it's a bee? Let me let me look at this picture. It was enormous. That, that's the thing that really struck me about it. Like, apart from oh that. wow, that is large, yeah. and that is almost pointed, but almost not. So I actually wouldn't. Mm, yeah, that's hard to say. I think it also depends on their behavior. Like wasps tend to be more aggressive and like flying at you and buzzing around your food and stuff. Bees just mind their own business. Yeah. Chill out. Bees are just looking for the next you know, flower. Unless you're like attacking their hive, they're not going to like. Even then, they're like pretty chill. Have you guys seen you. the videos, the TikToks of the woman who like? saves beehives yes i've seen a couple of those and she just like scoops the bees up with her bare hand and puts them in the box and scoops the bees and puts them in the box (laughs) finds the queen clips it scoops the bees puts them in the box it's very nice oh my gosh so kate talked about doing an analysis of lead in honey in vancouver and they found very low levels it's not concerning to consume the honey from vancouver and i think dr vice talks about this well of course, they had to do a little bit more, right? And in Dr. Weiss's lab, they look at isotope ratios. So, of course, they had to look at the isotope ratios of honey. So here's Dr. Weiss on that. So where did the interest in studying honey come from? Well, that came, it's more a serendipitous um, event than anything else. It uh, came from a friend of a friend, and uh, it was a beekeeper for Hives for Humanity. Hives for Humanity is a non-profit organization in downtown Vancouver, and the idea was to put hives in the city to motivate homeless people. So that was in 2013. And the big question was, is the honey clean? And I said, yes, I can help with that. Uh, I can analyze the, the honey for trace elements, trace metal contents. Obviously, I cannot analyze for um, organic compounds. So that's what we did. And I had 10 samples from different locations in the city and also in the, the residential area in Vancouver, all hives for humanity. And the honey was clean. That is the levels of lead where in the PPB range. So one PPB is the equivalent of one drop of water in an Olympic sized swimming pool. So it's um, safe for consumption. But I also saw trends that is the honey from downtown had higher levels, still safe, but higher levels. And also uh, me being me, I like isotopes and I like to use isotopic composition to finger point the source of materials, materials being volcanic lavas or 
metals, we analyzed lead isotopes in these honey and we find different signature. So that's all, all how it started. And it turns out that there are many, many people who there are 17,000 beehives in Vancouver, wow. which is a crazy number when you yeah. think about it. Everybody is, was keen on getting their analysis. Uh, clearly, that was becoming out of control because it takes time to dissolve honey. It's not that simple. So I, I um, developed a PhD project, and that's how Kate Smith came on board in 2017. And uh, we have now published three papers on that um, study. It's, mm. it's, it's fascinating. Wow. So? 17,000 hives. Yeah. I really like the fact that she was like me being me. I really like that <laughs> yeah. because it's like, like scientists are human beings too. And we have our own like quirks and whatever. And like curiosity yeah and like that definitely like the science that you study definitely shapes the way that you see the world um mm -hmm. so it completely makes sense to like if somebody is like can you just study this one thing for me then you're gonna be like sure i'll study that one thing but like while i'm doing it i'm also gonna study the things that i'm interested in um yeah mm -hmm. i thought that was really interesting mm -hmm. yeah like Oh, just see if there's see if there's inorganic elements in this. Okay, I'm also gonna look at the lead ratios though to see the sources. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, I still want to know. Like, this is a question that I've been waiting to ask since the beginning. How do you measure different isotopes? Because I I have like I have my own suspicions. Also because I know you, Alistair. Um, and I know what how what you work on and how you work on it but like for our listeners like to determine elements or to determine substances then like it depends what you're looking for as to how you go about searching for it like different chemicals you can do different chemical reactions to see like what the results are and blah 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 like uh glowing splint into a into a test tube to search for oxygen and like those are simple things but like the point with isotopes is that they're not different elements. So their chemical signature is going to be the same. Mm -hmm. So here's my guess, if I can make one. Go ahead, yes. My, my guess is that you use the mass because the point of isotopes is that they have the same chemical signature but different masses. And mm -hmm. that's exactly what mass spectrometry is meant to search for. Is that right? You're completely correct. So um, in my lab, in my research, I use oh, inductively coupled plasma mass spectrometry. I've talked about the inductively coupled plasma part. Um, and I'm not going to go into today the mass spectrometry part, but it is how we look for different isotopes and different elements is you look at their masses as they hit your detector. Um, you look at specifically, you look at what's called the mass to charge ratio because you're using charged species, right? The plasma causes elements to become ions, and then you look at those ions and their mass to charge ratio. Yep. And knowing the charge, you can calculate the mass. Um, what Dr. Weiss's lab uses is high resolution mass spectrometry. So 
my the work that I do, I'm looking at different elements. So we only need a resolution of about one atomic mass unit, like so that you can tell oxygen from nitrogen, right? They differ in about no, they differ in a few mass units. But anyway, <laughs> um, what differs in one mass unit? Uh, nothing. Can we just point out that the chemistry PhD student is staring blankly at his periodic table right now? <laughs> um, so my research, we only need a resolution of one atomic mass unit because I'm looking at different elements, yeah. and they differ in a few mass units. But uh, Dr. Weiss and Kate Smith are looking at the different isotopes, and so they need to use very high-resolution instruments and a very clean lab. Um, that's another reason why it's a clean lab, is because they're looking at very low levels and very sensitive yeah. instruments, using very sensitive instruments. So both Kate and Dr. Weiss talked about high of humanity, studying honey. Um, and so Dr. Weiss developed a PhD project to look at the lead isotope ratio in the honey. But one of the key things is if you're going to develop a PhD project looking into something, you should make sure that you're also eliminating other possible avenues of exploration. I know that sounds kind of weird um, <laughs> when I put it that way. But basically, why honey? Why are they looking, why would they look at the honey specifically? And so Kate explained that to me in this clip. So one part of this project was I, I did do a hive matrix comparison. Um, so I used, I looked at honey for which there's loads of data that we have already. And I continued to collect honey throughout my, my time on this project. And typically each year we had about 35 to 50 hives in circulation. And that of course fluctuated by like, well, this hive didn't do so well, or this one didn't survive the winter or a, a really thriving hive gets split. And from these hives, I also collected bee tissue, bees, and I would collect, it's a little bit sad, but it's, it's for science. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, I'd collect, um, maybe 30 bees at each sampling from a single hive and we're collecting foragers, right? So uh, the foraging tasks are, are, are um, reserved for the older worker bees. So they're at least, I would say at least 30 days old. Bees mm -hmm. only live like 45 days, worker bees. And they are the ones foraging. So they've had time to accumulate sort of their environmental uh, chemistry, their cocktail that makes them them, so to speak. And, and then they're the ones interacting the most with the environment. So we collected foragers, as well as honey, of course, and bee pollen, also known as bee bread, which is the pollen the bees bring back, and they pack it really tightly into the hives. Uh, they add some saliva, which is just chock full of enzymes. And so the pollen starts to ferment and that's what's called bee pollen and in the past humans have eaten it for protein but it's fed to the brood it's fed to the growing larva and pupa and uh, really really protein rich um, and then we collected propolis which is the sort of resin rich glue that the bees use to seal cracks in the hive and um, propolis is interesting it has a lot of it's got a lot of hydrogen peroxide 
not a lot, but relatively speaking. Um, and it's got antimicrobial properties, so it helps keep the hive clean and sealed. Um, and propolis, in, there are records um, of studies from Eastern Europe in if bees can't find resin, tree resin or plant resin, they'll use tar or uh, human-made adhesives and make propolis. So I thought oh. it, it might be a really cool um, biomonitoring tool to see if there's any sort of anthropogenically sourced material in the prop propolis, but um, propolis was actually the poorest biomonitoring matrix from the hive that we, in Vancouver, and I think it's because Vancouver has just so much green space. So the bees had no trouble finding natural resins. The whole point of that though was to compare, I guess the efficacy of the data from each of these matrices in terms of geospatial mapping of these metals. Mm -hmm. um, and, and they all worked pretty well, except for the propolis. <laughs> Honestly, can I just say one thing? I really want to go to Vancouver now. <laughs> You have to come visit. Just hearing about how it's a really green city, honestly. Um, can I just, like, I love bees. They make so much stuff. Yeah. Bee bread, bee pollen, honey, wax, propolis. Like, they are just insane for what they're able to produce. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's like... Yeah. They are the original materials engineers. They, they do yeah. it all. That's so true. And this was something that really drew me to Dr. Weiss and Kate and uh, the paper that we'll get to talk to in a little bit, um, is that they're using these natural foragers as their samplers. So they're not going mm -hmm. out and collecting dust samples from around Vancouver to look at the lead isotopic ratios. They're using mm -hmm. bees to do that. Yeah. Because bees yeah. are already sampling. They're already going to be sampling. Exactly. And Kate did say that the the bees were the best biomonitors, but of course you don't want to have to kill bees to do this study. Yeah. So the honey, although it doesn't give you as great um, signal to noise, like it doesn't have as much of these elements in it, it still has the elements in it. So you can use honey, which is something that you can passively collect. Yeah. And you don't have to kill yeah. bees. Yeah. So, And you are passive. It's not even just like you can passively collect it. In the case of urban beekeeping, you are absolutely yeah, yeah. well, exactly. it, right? Like, yeah. it's not even like you're stealing from a wild beehive and you're just like, ha, I got the honey. This is like the whole system has been set up to collect this honey. Well, and yeah. it's also not like you need like your whole honey harvest to do this analysis on. Like, no. I don't know how much they're using, but I'm guessing like a few tens, maybe hundreds of milliliters. Yeah. But yeah, it's you also only like if you're using... Mils wild bees you would just have to like go out and find the hives too and just like be searching for them and hope that they don't move over time mm -hmm. yeah. but like with urban beekeeping this is like somebody is always checking on it we're always collecting the honey i was gonna say about this this is probably like one of the few phd students who can eat their research and <laughs> i'm so jealous <laughs> i am so jealous yeah. <laughs> actually I wish uh, my research was kate, kate talked about that she has done so much honey analysis in the past few years that she's actually kind of yeah. sick of it <laughs> like, <laughs> i was wondering i was like you must like like probably she has tasted all of these honeys eaten a lot of honey like maybe she is sick of it that's fine yeah but does she have a favorite honey? 
Oh, I didn't ask her that. Oh, I should have Oh, my asked. God. And sh- you know what? You could have asked her, too. Maybe send her a follow-up email to ask her, what is her favorite honey in terms of taste, but also in terms of lead isotopes? Because she probably has a favorite science honey and a favorite food honey. I will ask Which is her. not something that we normally have. We normally just like, have a favorite food yeah. honey. Yeah. This would have made great material for the for the quiz at the end, but um <laughs> what's we'll Kate's favorite out. honey? <laughs> um So now I want to tell you a story. Okay? <gasps> Love a story. I'm so ready. On April 15th, 2019, just after 6 p.m., an electrical short or maybe an improperly extinguished cigarette, ignited a fire in the attic of a a beloved cathedral in central Paris. (gasps) This blaze would capture the world's attention as the cathedral's spire and lead roof were completely engulfed in flame. I'm of course referring to the fire at Notre-Dame de Paris. With winds blowing in an uncharacteristic northwesterly direction, smoke billowed from the roof, which historically had been covered with over 400,000 kilograms of lead. Fortunately, firefighters were able to have the fire under control after four hours of intense work. The cathedral's art, two pipe organs, and rose windows had little to no damage, and only three emergency workers were injured. So, I'm sure you guys are familiar with the fire at Notre Dame. Yeah, I remember where I was on that day. Definitely heard of it. Yeah, it captured the world's attention. Um, but I'm going to leave it to Dr. Weiss to talk about how this actually relates to our podcast episode. <laughs> That's, well, that has to do where I'm coming from. And, and uh, also my idea of always tracing whatever we can do. I'm from Belgium. And the happened that the Notre Dame fire, I found out about the Notre Dame fire as I was sitting in the tarmac in an airplane in Vancouver on my way to Paris. And as soon as I discovered that a lot of lead had been emitted in the environment, I thought, well, why can't we, I mean, maybe we can do the same thing than in Vancouver and see if we can trace what happened. So that was a a simple logic. We got a set of samples from hives in Paris that we strategically selected to to be down the wind from the cathedral and and background and also in Paris suburbs suburbs as control. And that's how we did the the Paris studies. And it worked very well. It worked very well for trace elements in the sense that down the wind from the far, you see an increase in um, lead and a trace metal concentration uh, into the honey. Again, still at very low levels. It's amazing how the making of the honey is a clean, clean, clean the, the, the metals and things like that. What we did not find in Paris is a distinctive signature, and that's related to the long history of various lead users in, in, in such a city with a very long history. And uh, most of the leads are coming from same sources with, with not significantly distinct signature. And also everything is, is uh, there's legacy lead everywhere in Paris. So they used bees to see if the lead from the fire was 
spread all around Paris. Now, I will say they also, um, the Paris authorities did human studies and, and like, checked to make sure that lead levels weren't dangerous um, in the surrounding area um, using uh, blood samples and soil sampling and, and traditional sampling methods. But Dr. Weiss thought, hey, why not take this lead analysis stuff that we've been doing in Vancouver and apply it in Paris? Yeah. The bees, the bees. The bees. This is another example of like science working. So you're like doing your research about lead and then somebody's like, hey, can you check this this honey for me? And you're like, well, I've, why not? Like I've got the capability to do it and so I'm just going to do it. And then you're like, oh, there's this uh, big emergency that's happened in the city that I'm just about to travel to for other reasons. And um, I wonder whether the science that I've been doing can help in some way, uh, like, work on this newfound area of, like, interest to the public. I just think that it's very interesting, like, how science goes from lava flows in Monarchia to Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris, like, via a social program in Vancouver. I just think that's really interesting. Yeah, and um, this is what drew me to the paper. There was an article written about the results from this paper, and so I, I found this paper about honey from the after the Notre Dame fire, and then got in touch with the researchers. So it's it's this has been the journey kind of a little bit backwards, but um, this is what drew me to this topic in the first place. So... so- can I ask a quick question? Mm-hmm. Maybe you're going to get to this in the end, kind of, or like in the next little section. Like there are other already other ways of testing for like environmental contaminants, like you said, or like lead and that the French authorities were already doing in response to the Notre Dame Cathedral. So why are we, others than the fact that bees are already sampling and things that we discussed, but like why are, um, why is Dr. Weiss and Kate Smith so excited about the bee honey method. So a key thing from their Vancouver study that maybe I didn't explain completely is that they, they're still working on it, but they're able to see that the lead ratios, the lead isotope ratios in the honey in Vancouver are from anthropogenic sources, which is human caused sources. So it's not naturally occurring lead that's being taken up by the flowers and then transferred to the bees from the, mm-hmm. the ground, like natural lead in Vancouver, because they've actually done studies. They've looked at the levels, the lead isotope ratios in ground samples and rock samples from the mountains nearby Vancouver, and they see a different signature in their honeys. So this lead is coming from other sources. They think it might be coming from the port of Vancouver. So ships coming in mm-hmm. from Vancouver, um, the gasoline, from those ships and so they're on like a lead treasure hunt or mm-hmm. like mystery search case of the mystery lead we have this lead with this signature and it's not from vancouver yeah it's from some somewhere else mm-hmm. yeah. and we're gonna find out where are we gonna exactly. find out where so then um are we about to find out where did they find out they're where? still we... they're still doing the research on finding out where it's from because that's the hard part is then you have to go and f- okay mm-hmm. it's not from vancouver then you just have to sample everywhere where is it from exactly so they're they're doing some work to they're just doing this work now um testing mm-hmm. uh i think 
fuel samples um, and and other things. Cool. So they thought it might be interesting to take their method and see if they could conclusively say that the lead levels that they found in the hives around Paris came from the lead from the roof of Notre Dame. Okay. And so this is great. I'm actually going to play now a clip of Kate talking about this part of the study. Uh-huh. And I just want to highlight again um, some terminology. Anthropogenic means human-caused. Geogenic is the kind of opposite of that, and that means naturally occurring. So um, I think I, it was mentioned earlier as well, anthropogenic sources. It's human-caused sources. So here's Kate on the lead isotope ratios in Paris. It was an interesting test for using lead isotopic compositions in honey because here we are we before the the lead isotopes in honey have only been done in in vancouver and in sydney australia by some Mm. of our collaborators and and they were sort of all at the same time and the results were very similar and supportive but in paris you have a much older city, right? So Vancouver and Sydney are incredibly young cities in terms of human development and industrial and technology and that sort of thing. So in Paris, you have literally millennia scale of, of lead use, right? And you've, you've got all the history of, of ores and the economics of the trade. Uh, and, and we know because of, uh, because of the historical record, roughly where the lead ore for the roof and then the subsequent steeple came from, the newer steeple, the one that recently melted from Notre Dame. And those are from the Iberian Peninsula. Um, So they're probably Rio Tinto ore from Spain. And we of course know the isotopic composition of that. And the the, the isotopes in the honey subsequently are, are, they, they match that. But there's no there's no big shift because that type of lead was used in Paris for for centuries, and so the lead isotopes in this case it supported our findings, but it wasn't necessarily the sort of gotcha data that it would be in a younger city. So there you go. So they found that it was the same lead from the roof, but that lead was actually used all over the city. Yeah, right. <laughs> Still is. Yeah, so it sounds like all of the bees kind of have that lead happening, but the bees downwind of the fire had more of it. Exactly. And that's the super interesting thing is the wind normally blows in a, a I think it's southwesterly direction, just average for that day. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was in a northwesterly direction. So they could kind of cordon off hives in an area and say, this is... So these uh, hives have been more impacted or like, yeah, they've potentially been more impacted by this fire than they would normally be by the Notre Dame roof. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Cool. Um, that's really interesting because like one of the things that was coming to my mind was like, if they've only started these studies after the fire, it sounds more difficult, like you can't do a before and after, like you can't say what's the normal levels of lead in these particular hives, which like, even if you wanted to like extrapolate from the Vancouver data, that would be really difficult because there are different populations of bees and like they might 
potentially excrete or absorb lead in different ways and blah 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 so like you couldn't do it before and after analysis on it so it'd be a diff- it would be difficult to say what was kind of natural and what was due to the fire but it makes sense that they've like got a, a kind of natural population which would be like south west did you say was mm-hmm. like the normal direction of the wind and then northwest was how it blew on that particular day so that's kind of like mm-hmm. almost there before and after well exactly and and as dr vice talked about they sampled uh hives from the french countryside as well so it was very very not it, it wasn't impacted by the fire yeah and so they were able to compare it to that and you can compare to a certain extent you can compare the hive the honeys from vancouver and the honeys from paris because you're not looking at the levels of lead necessarily you're looking at the isotope ratios and so it's a little bit easier or or you can you can make comparisons although the sources of lead are different in those two cities yeah. and so um, yeah yeah so that might be more just what you find is that exactly find? yeah i guess you'd find a difference yeah um i'm surprised too bad they couldn't like find any like honey on the shelves that had been bottled before the fire from these hives mm. that is pre-fire honey yeah yeah <laughs> i'm sure i'm sure a more extensive like with more funding, <laughs> more funding and more time that that could be done. That would be interesting too, definitely. One of the interesting things I talked about with uh, Dr. Weiss was that um, a lot of store-bought honey is cut with sugar water, so it's actually falsified and fake. Oh wow! And so it, it's very hard to do your analysis with store-bought honey because a lot of the honey has been cut with sugar, and it's really hard to tell that that's happened. But it means that it cuts down on the amount of lead in the honey. Right. And so, then, yeah. like, who knows where that sugar water's come from and what contaminants that might have. Right. So they go to the source and get it from there. Yeah. Um, so we're, we were talking about the lead levels in the honey in Paris and how the lead came from the roof, but that lead is also used in pipes and other places in Paris. And so uh, Kate and I got talking about this and... I just want to play you this clip now about uh, global lead use and lead around the world. Well, it's becoming more and more difficult, I think, with a globalized Mm. economy. And so that's one of the challenges with lead. It's a really good question because that challenge is ongoing and it's only getting worse with a more we have, we're moving toward a circular economy, right? Which is good, but that means, so the lead, the lead we get for our car batteries, right? A typical car battery has like 12 kilograms of lead in it Mm. and you're supposed to recycle it, but a lot of them get shipped to Asia for recycling. Mm -hmm. Um, And actually a lot of countries do that. They ship they ship their batteries away for recycling. And then the recycled material ends up somewhere else for reprocessing or repurification. And then that material gets shipped elsewhere, maybe for fabrication. So it's it's really, I worry a little bit that we're moving toward a more homogenous sort of anthropogenic lead composition. Mm. But for now, we can still, because of leaded gasoline, and and this is the really sad 
one of the sad results is that most environmental surveys are just overwhelmingly governed by the lead isotopic, the, the gasoline mixing array, which has two extreme end members, right? Um, one is from Southeast Missouri, and then the other one's from Broken Hill, Australia, which have very, very different lead isotopic compositions. And then, uh, and, and those two ores were the two most exploited for producing the tetraethyl lead that was added to gasoline and sold all over the world. So, um, and then there of course are many, many other ores that were also used to produce tetraethyl, gas, uh, tetraethyl lead added to gasoline. Um, but of course they have um, compositions that fall in between those two end members, I'd say. And so most, uh, all the honey we've analyzed from around the world, it all falls along that lead mixing line, mm. which is, I guess, I mean, it's pretty heartbreaking that that's what's governing our sort of all of the lead compositions on the surface of the earth. I mean, it was, and yeah. it, it was a crazy amount of lead pollution and lead. It's not mobile in the environment. It doesn't really go anywhere. Um, it's there. It's, and remediation, of course, is very expensive. As yeah. you know, it's it's not terribly mobile unless you're in a really acidic soil, maybe low pH soil. So um, it's there. <laughs> so yeah, I thought two things that were interesting. What she said is that we're moving towards potentially a more homogeneous lead ratio of the earth, just because we have such a globalized economy, but. Yeah, currently what dictates lead ratios is lead that was in gasoline. Mm-hmm. And there's kind of, as she said, there's these two sources and their honey falls right along that mm-hmm. line. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. If you look at a, a, a apportionment graph where you have these two end members, as she said, the, the two gasoline yeah. sources... Mm-hmm. Natural sources are also on that graph, but they fall in different areas, not on that line. So you'd be mm-hmm. able to see if your lead was coming from a natural source. And mm-hmm. at least in these honeys, it's not. It's basically from gasoline. Wow. Mm-hmm. There are, and there, I should say, there are overlaps with some natural sources on the gasoline lead mixing line because obviously to make the gasoline, they need lead from yeah. the ground. I think to what this means to me and what I'm interpreting from this is that we have like lead pollution is the overwhelming contributor to lead in honeys. But would, if we didn't have this leaded gasoline signature, like then would the environmental, like I feel like environmental lead would still be at really low levels that might be barely detectable. Like, or would we just, are we interested in detecting like in terms of in our honey, Aside from the fact that we have lead pollution all over the world that is from leaded gasoline, why are we worried about the fact that we can't detect environmental lead in it? Um, I think it's just the source. It's it's not that we can't detect it necessarily. Of course, all of this is happening at very low levels. It's not that the, mm-hmm. the honeys have high levels of lead from gasoline. It's that the yeah. very, very low levels of lead fall along or have a profile of mm-hmm. gasoline source. The yeah. source is yeah. from lead that was used in gasoline, mm-hmm. yeah. not necessarily other sources like rocks and, and minerals. I guess that mm-hmm. makes sense anyway, because like when you burn it, 
then it spreads much more easily than like if you have a lump of lead that just stays mm-hmm. fixed. Well, and that's why the that's why the fire in Paris was right. So yeah, yeah. Significant is because it aerosolized it put into the air a whole bunch of lead particles. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Then I wonder, like, like these are all urban bees, you know? We have, so would we expect, like, if you found a wild beehive in the middle of the forest on a mountain in Vancouver, does this one also fall along environmental, or gas, leaded gasoline lines? Do we know? It's a good question. Um, I don't know for certain. I would think, though, that it would, because I think the use of leaded gasoline it just spread so far. It spread mm. far and wide. And it's probably also, like, much more bioavailable, I imagine, because I'm assuming, like, lead will just settle on the surface of the dirt, and things that are on, like, the top layer of peat and in the dirt, in the top layer, as opposed to in veins, in the, like, down in the mm-hmm. middle of the rock bed, is much more accessible for flowers, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That's the other thing, is if yeah. you're, like, layering lead in dirt the flowers more likely to have that lead than the lead from the middle of the mountain that's been there entirely uneducated guess would be that you'd see more like higher levels maybe in cities of lead but you'd see a very similar profile of lead ratios Mm. well yeah and that's that's what they have found is in vancouver they found higher levels in the honeys in the city centers they did also they did also look at um kind of more wild honeys that are still managed hives but out in delta which is outside of the city of vancouver um and they found lower levels of lead in those honeys um Mm -hmm. yeah so so i wonder if you would be able to even like if our machines would even be able to detect at all the lead if we hadn't had lead pollution that's a very good question how much would our machines even be refined enough to detect that level of lead? Or is it only because we have lead pollution that it's at a detectable level? Again, it's not, it's, it's not that it's not detectable. It's that the source is from lead and gasoline. Right, but the levels are Understood, quite but my low. point still stands. They're still saying the levels are in parts per billion, like one drop in an Olympic swimming pool and even lower in non-downtown areas, Right. So, like, if we hadn't had lead pollution, settling lead all on the top layers of soil and, like, getting into flowers and getting into bees and getting into honey, then would the lead that's just in the environment even be at a high enough level in the flower, in the pollen, in the honey to be detected? I see. I see what you're saying. Yeah, that is a good question. I don't know. Yeah. Because also lead comes from other sources, too. Not just gas, but, you know, um, industrial processes, smelting, refining of things, mining operations. So, Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a very good question. Um, now, I asked about what future projects uh, Dr. Weiss and Kate had, and mm-hmm. they have some really interesting research uh, coming up using all of this. And so I'm just going to let them both tell you what their future plans are, their future work. Yeah, we started one. Um, which we call, and, and Kate might have, have talked to you about that, we call the, um, the COVID honey. And, and we, we decided it's actually not a good name because people think we do COVID research. No, we called it COVID honey because we, we did sampling in um, April, in May and June this year. 
to see if we could see a difference in the concentration levels in the honey because of the shutdown. But we haven't been able to analyze that yet. I think that's the last part we're going to do unless we come up with a, a striking idea of a good application. Because, you know, we can analyze honey everywhere in the world. And uh, Kate is actually on the verge of submitting one other paper, which is a world comparison of a few key locations. But, you know, it, it starts to becoming a cataloging instead of answering science questions. So that's becoming less interesting. Mm -hmm. So right now we're in what they, what the scientists are calling an anthropause, I like that. where anthropogenic activity is just kind of taking a, a breather. Industry has slowed, transit has slowed, and there have been other major anthropauses in the past. And they're usually, they usually happen when pandemics happen or the fall of a major empire or something. So you can look at ice core data from Greenland and northern Russia and elsewhere in the Arctic and see in the lead isotopic record the, the, the fall of the Roman Empire where lead production just plummeted. Wow. You can also see little, little uh, dips in uh, lead production that correspond to the first and second rounds of bubonic plague or the two major plagues, I guess. And and then of course you can you can see the industrial revolution just blowing the lead all the lead input of the previous millennia just totally it just orders of magnitude higher um but right now we have this this sort of unique or i shouldn't say right now i guess it was the peak was sort of several months ago we have um, a dip in uh, pollution input to the environment and so what we've done over the past probably since May, May to September, our honey production season here in Vancouver, we've been collecting more honey and some bees to uh, maybe assess if there's some difference. See if there's a bit of a shift since uh, that's, that's different than the six year baseline that we had previously measured in Vancouver. So, um, I guess we should just specify that this interview was done in October 2020, right? Yeah, yeah, but um, they're currently looking at the potential impact of COVID-19 yeah. on their honeys yeah. and how, um, I put this to Kate, but I think it's really interesting that um, they had this six-year baseline of, of analysis mm -hmm. of honeys in Vancouver to get kind of a, a background level. Then they had the um, catastrophic pollution event in Paris. And so, you know, mm -hmm. there was an increase in mm -hmm. lead. And now they have an opportunity to look at what happens if you take away industry mm -hmm. and potential sources. Is there a decrease? Mm -hmm. And I just think that's, it's a kind of beautiful little triad. That's really interesting. You could like paint a picture of honey with honey. Yeah. Uh, of world activity, you know, this yeah. beautiful honey yeah. mural of human activity. I have a question. Mm -hmm. um, because like the pan, like certainly the two months that they were talking about the peak, so like March and April, that's like quite a short time scale, or at least it is in my mind. Like my question is how, what is the lifetime of a hive of honey? I have no idea, but I think they've been sampling as much as they can. They've been sampling since March. Um, okay. 
and it's it's not just March and April that they're looking at. I think they're looking at as as Vancouver shut down and started to reopen, what have the levels been? Because there's only in in Vancouver, I I can't speak for Vancouver specifically because I don't live there, but I'm pretty sure March and April was very much, you know, everyone was staying home, nobody was yeah. taking transit, and now we're in a period in November of 2020 where I think people are more mobile and there's more yep. industry activity and stuff. So yeah, I'm really yeah. I think like this question also really would come up in the Notre Dame event, which was like a few hours, a few days of, like, increased, uh, like, aerosolized lead, I guess. So, mm -hmm. I, like, it's just really interesting that you can see, like, that kind of time scale in this data. Because, like, my guess is that in ice cores, you have to have, like, a year's, like, you're looking over mm -hmm. a year or a few years of, differences before you start to see well yeah and, th and that has to do with the fact that a lot of ice core data is compacted snow and so you have to wait for a season to yeah, go by true. before you have a layer yeah whereas with honey bees are producing many hives yeah. of honey each season i again i don't know how long it takes but um no that's just it, that's so interesting and i think that actually makes so then like what about soil because soil is like, my question is, is this going to become a way of actually monitoring levels of these, um, of like lead or other elements? Because like you've already said, you, you've already said, um, we already analyze soils for these kinds of things. And my guess is that soils are also quite quick turnaround things because like if you get rain then you can already see the difference in the soil immediately after the rain or like then it will get washed away and then it will change and like it changes really quickly um and honey like it's looking like that's also a fairly quick turnaround kind of thing um so will it replace something or will it just be another tool in our armory has it got access to something that we don't have access to via soils or something else. So as Kate touched on, bees and honey have been used as biomonitors for a while. Mm -hmm. um, a key thing of their research is the isotope ratio. Mm. I think there are challenges with honey in that there's a lot of water in honey, and so you're not getting a very high amount of your elements that you're looking for. And it's a very high sugar matrix there's a lot of sugar in honey which makes it difficult to prepare the sample for analysis mm. um, soil is also very difficult to analyze you have to use really really strong acids to break it down but soil is more conventionally used so i don't know if it would replace it but i think it would be another another tool okay in the tool belt like you said yeah so this is the end of our story today but i have kate with a few final thoughts and then i would love to get your guys's final thoughts okay. too okay. so Here's Kate on some final thoughts. Bees are dying. We need more bees. There's these massive colony collapse issues going on. And if one of the secondary benefits of someone out in the world hearing about this research is like, oh, 
right, the bees. I should start thinking about like, if, if this is just one more way to get someone interested, that's, that's really cool. Yeah. So, so set up a hive in your backyard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Although I learned that you should, at least in Vancouver, you're required to be trained and have like some sort of official course under your belt before you get a hive because you can actually cause more trouble for the local bees and the native bees if you don't know what you're doing, especially with really, really uh, high rates of viruses lately, hive mm. viruses um, and the varroa mite. Mm. So I guess, I guess there have been problems with novice beekeepers um, keeping, you know, spreading the mites and that sort of thing. Right. So do your research, take a course. Do your research. Get some bees. <laughs> yes. I'm convinced. I'm sold. I'm getting bees tomorrow. <laughs> I've heard that, um, I have no, I do not remember where I heard this, and so it's going to be tough to fact check it, but I think during the lockdown, um, people in London, like, started getting beehives and stuff, and there was, like, a big increase in the number of, like, uh, rooftop beehives or whatever, and I heard somebody saying that it was kind of problematic and it wasn't actually the best way of going about things and that like actually would have been way more helpful for bee populations if instead of like getting a beehive they'd planted some flowers mm. um I, like I say I, I don't remember where I found that and so like it's by the time it gets to you guys it's like second or third hand but I was just like Googling urban beekeeping in Montreal because I was like curious to know about it as well. And it does look like there is some issues with getting urban bees because they end up out competing wild bees and make it tougher for the wild bees. Yeah. So maybe, yeah, plant flowers, mm -hmm. friendly flowers. Yeah, plant flowers and like, yeah. and then you get the benefit of the flowers as well. Exactly. Edible flowers, plant edible flowers like marigolds. They're great. You can use them in food and make scones and make cordials or whatever you want. Learn about how to create mm -hmm. gardens that feed the bees and feed yourself and do it safely. Yeah. And if you want to keep bees, just do your mm -hmm. research and maybe have a wild hive of bees. You know, yeah. Or support bees. an organization that already is like coded for yeah. urban ag agriculture and like is already managing yeah. hives and just help them manage their yeah. hives instead of introducing yeah. another one. Yeah, exactly. If you're in the Vancouver area, check out Hives yeah. for Humanity. Yeah, I was just going to ask the name of that charity, Hives for Humanity. Um, we'll put a link in our social media and everything, our Google Doc. Yeah. And so that's where we end this episode. So before the quiz, do you guys have any final thoughts? I love bees. Bees are really cool. <laughs> bees are cool. Bees are really cool. All right. Let me hear your buzzers. Sienna, what is your buzzer noise? Bzz. Damn it. <laughs> I was I was gonna I... <laughs> Why did you pick her first? Okay. Um whoosh, that's the wind that carries the lead to and fro. Okay. The wind that carries the lead to and fro. Okay. So first question. What range of lead levels were found in honeys from Vancouver? Whoosh. Oh I heard Beth first. Parts per million. Yes, parts per billion. That's, That's correct. Like Do you want a drop of water in a in an Olympic swimming pool? Yes, you didn't have to say that, but I was just gonna see it. 
All right, second question. Maybe, Sienna, you can you can win it back with this one. What is the importance of looking at lead ratios? Is? Yes, Sienna? Um, I think there's multiple importances, but the importance okay. of looking at lead ratios specifically, I guess, is to tell you where the source of lead is because different places exactly. and different geological lead sources have very specific different ratios of lead isotopes because... It was determined long ago by uranium and the Big Bang. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uranium yes. and the Big Bang got together and they were like plotting <laughs> in several million, no, in several billion years, tens of billions of years. There will be some scientists and this is what we want them to find. And we so. want them to know that here in Mauna Kea in Hawaii, there is this ratio of lead isotope, whereas here yep. where we get the yep. lead for lead gasolines in australia there is this ratio yep. yeah exactly it was it was a huge conspiracy mm-hmm. <laughs> between uranium and the big bang <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the biggest exactly. conspiracy of all so you guys are tied um so maybe this one will be the tiebreaker i do have two questions actually so it won't be the tiebreaker <laughs> but what is bee bread Bzzz. yes Anna. it's the stuff they feed to the larvae in their hives and it's made of like pollen and spit, bee spit. Yeah. I just yeah. the only thing that I remember about it is that humans have also eaten it because it's high mm-hmm. in protein. That's so true. Yes. Okay, I'll give you also a point, Beth. Good. Yay. Good fact. Okay, now it's tied up. Oh my goodness. Tiebreaker. <laughs> ding ding ding. Um, what are some scientists calling this current pandemic period that we're in? Oh, I heard Beth. I think Sienna was I definitely first, buzzed first. Oh, I definitely heard that, I, 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 how about I say half of it, Sienna, and you say the other half. Okay, Beth, <laughs> you say the first half, I'll say the second half. Okay, anthra. Pause. <laughs> nice. Nice. Nicely done. So you're tied again. Oh. Everybody wins. Yeah, everyone's a it's winner. A, it's a win-win-win. As always. All right. This podcast is a win-win-win. I would like to thank Dr. Dominique Weiss and Kate Smith at the University of British Columbia for speaking with me for this episode. All of our sources can be found um, on our document. We have a source document. Yep. Yeah. Uh, But I wanted to highlight the uh, Hives for Humanity. And I'd like to thank our listeners for listening and Ellison for the music from this episode. I am Alistair. I'm Sienna. I'm Beth. And we thank you very much for listening. Check us out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and wherever you get your podcasts. Send us a buzz.